Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush, your host, and this is a show all about learning from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. My ambition with the podcast has always been to reach out to people from all different industries and walks of life to see what can be learned and applied from their experiences and the change they're trying to make. Today's guest fits the bill perfectly. It's the prolific folk punk singer Frank Turner. Originally of the post-hardcore band Million Dead, and since with a long and successful solo career, Frank has played more than 2,500 gigs and sold out venues across the world. Frank has long championed the importance of independent music venues, where so many artists cut their teeth and get their first taste of what it means to be on stage. When COVID hit last year and the vulnerability of the music and creative industries was laid bare, Frank launched a series of gigs live streamed from his home, which have raised around a quarter of a million pounds to help keep small independent venues afloat. He also played the first socially distanced gig at the Clapham Grand last summer, which acted to draw attention to the unprecedented challenges faced by the industry, which Frank believes is fundamentally undervalued and undersupported by the government. We chat a lot about the fallout last year and more generally about culture, creativity and the music industry. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe to stay up to date with the podcast. Here goes. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we'll kick off as we do with every discussion by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's a heavy question. Um, we're getting into it straight at the beginning. And, and I've got to be um, thoughtful about how I phrase this because um, wrong in some contexts is, is too strong a word. But essentially, the wrong I'm trying to write is that the infrastructure and the people working in the live music industry are being forgotten and being left to hang out and dry. Uh, uh, and I think that that's wrong. And I want to do something about that. Um, of course, you know, we're living through unprecedented times and everybody's improvising uh, and there are many, many things um, that have been damaged um, by the events of 2020 and the pandemic and coronavirus and all the rest of it. Um, And I think that you have to be a grown-up about it and you have to be sensitive to the fact that there are many demands on um, the public wheel or however you want to put it, you know, um, and and all that kind of thing. Having said all of that... um, I feel very strongly about the live music industry for a couple of reasons. The obvious one being that it's where I work and it's where my both my life, my income, my passion is all located. But also, you know, in, I, I like to think that at the best of times, I, I try and avoid special pleading. I try and avoid the feeling that what I do is more important or, or more, more anything, really. You know, it just happens to be what exists in the world. But I do think that there's a case to be made that live entertainment in particular in particular, has been hit incredibly hard in a, in, a, in a unique way. Because one way of describing what I and everybody who works in the live industry do um, is to say that we make our living gathering people together in confined spaces. And I think, you know, it's not, in, even over the summer, you know, various shops, restaurants, that kind of thing, were able to open up in a way. There, there was some tiny, tiny green shoots uh, in the live industry. But generally speaking, you know, we were the first to close down and we will likely be the last to open up again. And then the second thing, and I, I want to try and phrase this without sounding overly, like, furious. <laughs> but it's like, I, I've grown up in, in my time in the live music industry, which is well over two decades now. 
live music is generally where people go when they need benefits. Do you know what I mean? When they need to raise money for something that's struggling, they go to the live music industry and we oblige. We always do. We always have. I cannot tell you the list of things that I've done benefits for prior to 2020. Um, and it's cool and it's good. And it's nice to be able to monetize what I do for a living in a way that isn't just about me and my ego and my income and all the rest of it. But of course, now at a moment in time when we can't do what we do, the levels of kind of support and help, particularly from people who we've supported in the past, have been disappointing, shall we say, um, at least in some areas. I mean, I, I, I never at any point in this want to belittle any of the assistance that anyone's given because all of it matters and all of it helps. And there has been some assistance. We can talk about that. Yeah. But um, as, as a general picture, it's been an extremely bleak year. Um, it's been pretty bleak for me, and I'm probably had it easier than most people in my industry because I do have other income streams myself whether you're talking about merchandising or publishing and all that kind of thing there are people in my crew and my in my band who work at the venues that i know and all the rest of it who have just seen their income drop by 100 mm. percent um you know and there's not been a furlough scheme for them and a lot of the self-employment schemes have been useless to be blunt um so it's been a pretty galling year and, and that is the wrong that i wish to write no and i guess looking back then to when to march last year how clear was it at that point how big a impact it was going to be um well i mean there were a number of things i mean first of all you know i think like most people i remember in kind of january last year kind of news was filtering through that something was happening in china and and it's the boy who cried wolf there'd been you know asian flu and sars and, and various other things that had happened and it never amounted to very much so i found myself i'm not the most kind of thorough and avid news reader i like i try and scan the headlines in the morning um and and i and i remember sort of like dismissing it for a while and then it was in italy um also the other thing is we had um uh, my wife and i we were living in london at the time we've moved house since but um a friend of one of my best friends who's an actress had been in china doing a show um and she'd been in shanghai and she uh she ended up coming home early she was supposed to be there for like a year and she ended up only being there for about six weeks she came home and she ended up we put her up because she had you know moved out where she lived in london obviously um and you know she came to us and she had these stories about the city cities being locked down and 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 all this kind of thing and suddenly it was a lot more real at that point it was just like you know my wife and i were like really and she was like it's coming. Um, and then it was in Italy. And then, but then the other thing, of course, the thing that we all have to remember of talking about all of this is that, you know, I mean, let me put it this way. I had a, I have usually have an annual festival called Lost Evenings. It's in May. Uh, last year, it was supposed to be in Berlin. The lockdown kicking in in March, when it became apparent that it was going to happen, my manager and I had a conversation about how it was probably good if it starts sooner rather than later, because that means it'll be over by May. Mm-hmm. And we can go ahead because everyone was talking about three weeks. Um, yeah. So, you know, the enormity of a more than a year shutdown or whatever it is took a while to kick in. But the fact that it was just going to have to stop. I was on tour at the time around the UK and there was a very, very difficult and surreal week for me because essentially the news was snowballing and, and all the rest of it. And then I, I, I had this, it got to the point where I now was checking the news like manically yeah. every day. And every day, my manager and my agent and I were, and my tour manager, we were all having this sort of day long conference calls about what the right course of action was. Because on the one hand, you know, you don't want to be part of the problem. You don't want to be 
contributing to the transmission of disease or whatever it might be. Um, but on the other hand, you know, this is my job. There are people get, who have to get paid. There are contracts made between me and venues. And indeed, every ticket somebody buys is a contract. And I had sold out shows for, for another 10 days or whatever it was. And we did, there was this one to block of three shows. We had a day off where they said, where the government kind of said, uh, gathering's probably not a brilliant idea, but they're not yeah. illegal. And we went, oh, cheers. Boris, that's really, really helpful. Um, and then, so we then did, you know, the, we did three shows in that run. And the first one was in Bath. And, you know, I want to see, like, everyone showed up. It sold out show, and we had, like, 95% attendance, which is what you normally get at a sold out yeah. show. We had somebody clicking people in. And it was like, well, okay, people want to come. And uh, there is a degree of individual responsibility in this. And the show was amazing. And then the next day in Aylesbury, the same thing happened. The third one was in South End, and only about 60% of the people showed up. And it really felt like over those three days that the national tone of conversation had shifted and become a lot more vicious. And I started getting tweets and emails and all this kind of thing going, you're a murderer for doing shows, right. which was just like, really? Like... <laughs> Uh, it's you like know, no, no one knows any better, though. As you say, you're not given. No, them. totally. But it's what annoys me about it, and this is the thing that annoys me about modern culture generally, is that the internet convinces many, many people that they're instant experts about things. Goes well. I've been thinking about this for the last minute and a half, while it took, which it took me to find your email address. So here's my opinion on it, and it's kind of like cool. I've been doing this for 22 years, so I also have an opinion. Anyway, that's sorry, that's me sounding off a little bit, but, <laughs> but it was. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, oh, really? That never crossed my mind. But so you know, the, the enormity of it all, kind of that we were going to have to cancel the rest of the tour, and cancelling shows is my least favorite thing to do in the whole world. That kicked in, and then the next part, which goes to everything we started talking about, is that I remember kind of at the South End show. Generally, what happens when I play a show is I change guitars every three songs, so my guitar tech can tune up and clean the guitar and it was a solo tour so it's just me on stage and in the first guitar change because before the show we'd still been saying well let's see how it goes we had another five shows to go in the first guitar change i whispered in my guitar text here go and tell tree our tour manager go and tell her that this is the last one and we're done after this because right. the vibe was the vibe was just wrong in the room it didn't feel like the right place to be um and then after the show we all kind of had a massive huddle to figure out logistics which is what you tend to do when something like that happens you've got to figure out how to get everybody home i made a decision then and there to pay all of my crew through to the end of the tour even though we hadn't finished the tour and i just got into a conversation with tree my tour manager and kiaho my guitar tech and you know i was sitting there thinking oh it's a hit having to cancel shows that's going to cost me this is going to suck and maybe i'll have to cancel further shows that i had i had six months of shows announced and 18 months of shows booked and, and was thinking about how that would affect me but in conversations with the, with the guys and girls on my crew it was like oh hold on a minute it's going to affect them a lot more than it's going to affect me do you know what I mean I, and that I think was a moment when I started thinking about that and so the very first thing I did when I got home which was actually about a day before proper lockdown started is that me and my wife and our two American friends who were on the tour with us Vanessa and Micah um, we decided to do a live stream show from my house as a benefit for my regular touring family, which is 11 people um, outside of myself. And just because I thought they could probably do with a paycheck at this point, <laughs> you know what I mean, mm. to pan things out. And it went very well. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. If this is a cause close to your heart, if you're looking forward to going to gigs again when lockdown lifts, then I'd urge you to support the Music Venue Trust. Just go to musicvenuetrust.com or even treat yourself to a pack of fight back lager like I've done. A portion of every sale goes straight to the trust. Just go to shop.fightbacklager.com. Now back to Frank. 
is part of what you're saying there about how people in the live entertainment live music industry being being forgotten about is it like partly like a lack of understanding about how much is going on behind the scenes you're on stage but there is 10 times the number of people even more than that sometimes that people are blind to or the government are blind oh, to. Yeah. absolutely yeah completely first of all yeah i mean it was particularly poignant because i was doing a solo tour there's one person on stage right mm. it takes a lot more than just me to make that happen you know there's lighting there's sound there's monitors there's guitar tech there's um tour manager and and there's merch person that's the bare minimum of people that I need to make the show happen. And, um, uh, you know, so yeah, so there's that angle. The other thing as well is that the way that the live music industry is structured is, is it's generally people who work in crew in the live industry are freelancers um, mm-hmm. and they work on day rates and all the rest of it. Now, a lot of my crew have been with me for a decade or more, but nevertheless, that's still how their employment is structured, which is generally how they want it to be. But my point being that like, I'm not really in a position to furlough. I, there's, I don't have a way of applying for the funds to furlough um do you know what i mean it's like and, and the reason that crew people tend to do that is it gives them a lot of flexibility in terms of where they work and when they work and how they work and who they work with and all the rest of it and in normal times i mean i'm speaking on other people's behalf here which maybe i shouldn't do but in normal times people in crew are happy with that that's how they want it to be yeah. but it's proved to be kind of a fatal weakness in 2020 because suddenly uh, so many people I know found themselves like, oh, well, we can't do furlough. And then there were so many, I'm not an expert on this, but there were so many like um, loopholes and, and clauses in the self-employment stuff that a lot of people got not much or in some, in many cases, nothing from that as well. So, you know, that, that I think it was, it was a major issue. That's the thing. And I think it's very easy to apply the, the, criticism towards the government and it's very easy to defend and say well they can't make a, a unique case for every single possible yeah. um eventuality but as you say this is hundreds of thousands of people millions of people who work on that basis in various different yeah. industries uh who were forgotten about when it comes to yeah support yeah i mean i think that that goes to what i was saying in the beginning i, I want to be a grown-up about this i, I th- there are some people i know who are just intent on being absolutely furious about any decision that anybody in a place of power makes and i think that there's a argument to be made that some of the things that the government did last year were quite good some of them were quite bad you know on and column a we have the um quite a lot of what rishi sunak did which i think was kind of defensible in column b things about shutting down too late ppe whatever it might be it's it's an adult conversation where there's there's shade and, and light and all the rest of it. Yeah. But um, this is where we come back to what I was saying about special pleading is that like, you know, you're absolutely right. It, it was an impossible situation in many, or at the very least an unprecedented situation for people in power to figure out how it is you shut down an economy without destroying everybody's lives in a way to then save lives. That's a very difficult thing. And I'm extremely, I, I'm a, every day I'm grateful that I don't work in politics, but I was especially please <laughs> at that moment in time um and and in many areas they did well and that's fine and you know it's it's fair enough to say that there'll be a time lag as the problems develop and people they put in the scheme and then people go well this and this isn't covered and they go okay fine and, and all the rest of it but you know it's as i say the the combination of the fact that our industry is just not possible to go ahead with the fact that there's so many kind of freelancers within it has been a double whammy i think um and in, in a way that I think is unique to let's say the entertainment world. I mean, you know, we can, we can and should include, you know, the theatre and this and that kind of thing, and, and indeed a lot of people who work in bars and that kind of thing as well. Um, but you know, it's it's not been 
like this for anyone who works in an office or mm. do, do you know what I mean it's like it, it has been quite specific yeah definitely and then as you kind of referenced everyone at the time was was saying oh three weeks of lockdown and then uh we'll be sort of back to some sort of normality I had right. Glastonbury in the diary maybe you did too uh, for, did, for last yeah. summer and all my me and my friends were messaging saying oh well let's just look forward to Glastonbury and let this all blow over yeah I guess. right once the once those first few weeks went by when and and you kind of referenced that you did that first live stream to support your own uh your own team when did you start to think okay well i'm actually gonna have to try and make a make a much bigger impact here because this is going to run for a lot longer than anyone else thought and i can hopefully make a difference um i mean i i'd hesitate to say that i thought about it in precisely those terms or at least that kind of order i mean Essentially, we did the first live stream as a benefit for my for my band and crew, and it it was fun, it was easy, um, and it raised a ton of money. Um, and one of the weirdnesses about twenty twenty was one of the things I enjoy about being on tour is that you do your job and then you go to sleep and then you wake up in a new place if you're on a bus or you travel to a new place the following day, whatever it might be. We did that first show, you know, I had some drinks with Vanessa and Micah and my wife immediately afterwards. Uh, one of the things we raised money for was a plane ticket to get Vanessa and Micah home because they were right, there from yeah. Ohio. Uh, and we did, and that was great. Um, and, and then um, kind of woke up the next day and was in the same place. and <laughs> just kind of went, oh. Um, and then just sort of thought to myself, well, I could do that again. I have more songs than I played last night or whatever, and... <laughs> There are other causes. And then actually the, the specific mechanics of the venue shows that came down to is that I was chatting to the guys at Nambuka, which is a venue that I love dearly, where I actually used to live uh, once upon a time, a uh, long time ago. Um, and the initial plan was that they were saying, oh, they, was, they were very ahead of the curve on this. They said, we've got a kind of live stream set up in the venue and you could come and do a show here with no people in, but we could, you know, sell tickets or raise money or whatever it might be. And this was at a point in time when that was all very new uh, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. And and so we had a plan to do that. And then the proper lockdown came in, the whole stay at home, don't leave your right, house. Yeah. So I called Giles, who runs Nambuka, and I just said, I don't think I can come over, even though at the time I lived 15 minutes away. I was like, I, mm, that's not going to happen. Um, and then I sort of said, well, I could just do a show like I did last week with a fundraising link and, and do that and see what happens. So we did, and it raised a really significant chunk of change for them. Um, and I think both I and Giles were pleasantly surprised by this. Not least because there was part of me that thought, well, I did it last week. No one's going to tune in next week kind of thing. But they did. Yeah. Um, and, and that then established um, a pattern. I'd done one Thursday, I did the following Thursday, and it was like, well, here we go. And I think I did some somewhere in the region of 20 Thursdays in a row. <laughs> um which got quite uh, grueling towards the end of it, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and, and, and like I, I capped the first round of it, partly because things were starting to ease off lockdown-wise, but also because I'd run out of songs, literally. Viewing figures and, uh, and fun, funds raised were starting to tail off. Yeah. Which is the thing I'd expected to happen, but I expected it to happen after like two weeks. And, and I'm kind of amazed it lasted as long as it did and and very grateful to to all the people who donated week on week you know um but so i capped it at that point i have started up again in january because it's everything's miserable and we're back in lockdown again i've done three of them now um i will probably do maybe the same again i'm not gonna do another 20 
I'm not sure that I can face it to be honest. As much fun mm. as it is to do, it's also it's a fair amount of work, and it and it starts getting a little bit. It it goes from being kind of like a weekly kind of gathering of friends that's really positive into a reminder that everything's awful. Mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and there's a sort of bit of a a balance to be struck there about whether it's doing good or bad things for for my mental health. Um, and indeed, of course, it depends on funds raised and attendance and all this. You know, because one of the things I jotted down, and I guess this is something that's impacted all sorts of people in different ways, but like, how have you felt this sort of sudden change in, in lifestyle and working routine affect your own creativity and, and motivation? Um, it's been a roller coaster. Um, I mean, I definitely think there was a moment in time when a lot of people were talking about kind of lockdown as if it, if it was this uh, monolithic experience, which it really, I don't know about you, it hasn't been for me. It's been very up and down. Um, and the beginning was weirdly kind of okay because there was this sense of, dare I say it, novelty and kind of blitz spirit and kind of like, you know, everyone making Second World War metaphors, which were always a little bit ahistorical and arguably tasteless. But anyway, um, uh, <laughs> and uh, but, you know, there was a sort of sense of camaraderie during the rounds and, and it was exciting to know whether you'd find any pasta in the shop and um, <laughs> whatever it might be. Uh and then, you know, I mean, I think one of the things for me is that touring is not just the vast majority of how my, my living, it's also my identity, you know, and I felt very kind of hold below the waterline in terms of identity. Um, that got particularly acute in the late summer when a lot of things started opening up again, a lot of other businesses, restaurants and shops and that kind of thing. The more that things are eased off for most people, the more I just felt unemployed. Mm. Um do you know what I mean? And it was just kind of like, it's so many of my friends would be like, oh, well, you know, we're back in work this week and all the rest of it. And I'd be like, I'm not <laughs> like, yeah. what the fuck? Um, so, so, uh, you know, and, and, and like, there've been good and bad moments. There's been, you know, I felt pretty good generally speaking about the independent venue love shows that I've been doing. The grand total raised is up to about 250 grand now, which is pretty cool. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously split between venues and I'm not the one donating. I don't have 250 grand to know, but you know, as a facilitator, I'm quite proud of that. Yeah. On, on the flip side, you know, the day when I had to cancel lost evenings, I knew it was coming. It was obvious it was coming. But the day when I had to get on a conference call and actually work out a kind of announcement plan and what we're going to do about how we're going to figure out refunds, blah, 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 all the rest of it, that was a really, really horrible day for me. And I had to go and like scream in a cupboard um, for a bit. Do you know what I mean? You know, so uh, it's been it's been a real roller coaster for sure. Um, in terms of creativity, it's been interesting. I mean, I've been trying to keep busy. One of the things for me that I get from touring contrary to to um cliche touring is actually a very structured way of living it's not this kind of mad bacchanalian okay, excess yeah. chaos all the time you know i generally speaking know what i'm doing at every minute of the day from when i wake up to when i go to bed because my tour manager gives me a day sheet when i get up um and and uh i need structure and routine in, in order to achieve and to create and to be productive and to not kind of give in to my worse instincts should we say um so i tried to kind of build some structure and routine into my life i mean i had a few weeks of like everyone of netflix and wine and nothing else and that got a bit unhealthy after a while so i've been doing things like i've been learning how to kind of mix and produce properly um uh that was a kind of 
I mean, hobby, it's hopefully going to become an income stream at some point, but, you know, gave me a kind of a structure for my days. And and, and then the weekly shows was a structure as well. And then trying to write, because I am working on a new record at the minute in some shape or form. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, trying to kind of keep constructive and keep productive. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, I'd have weeks where I'd write 10 songs and then weeks where three weeks where I write nothing at all. So it, it's been up and down. And uh, yeah, it was another thing I was thinking about, about like, obviously the the independent venues play an important role for punters who want to go and be entertained. But there's so much more beyond that in terms of other musicians getting inspired, meeting other people. Yeah. Like we forget that bands or artists who have global acclaim now often started by playing in the smallest venue in their in their little town. I think it's it's so easy, isn't it, for people just to kind of. Some people will think, "Oh, well, actually, I can just uh, I can just watch gigs on my computer now." Fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one thing I would say, one very small silver lining to the enormous cloud that is the pandemic has been for me. I feel like it's absolutely laser sharp focused in on why gigs are better than live streams. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because there's a part because I've watched a fair amount of live streams and I've done more than my fair share and like you know, I'm watching music being performed and I can hear it and I'm there and the musicians are there and it's not like we usually hang out while they're playing or whatever. So it's a way of kind of like, um, almost like experimentally stripping away things and, and laying bare, you know, you, you have all of this and it's like, well, it's still not a gig. Why, you know, mm. I can turn it up as loud as it would be in a venue and it's still not a gig and, and I can drink shit beer out of a plastic cup if i really want to and it's still mm. not a gig and 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 it sooner or later you hone in on the fact that what's exciting and what's different about live music is the sense of gathering the sense of people coming together and being in a room with each other and of course you can get specific and talk about networking and all the rest of it but it's i think it's something quite physical i think it's mm. something quite kind of primal in a way do you know what i mean and and there's that moment in a in a show when the, if, if it's going well, um, when, when the room kind of unifies in this really sort of mystic way, which is obviously something I think about a lot anyway. And it's sort of at the heart of what I'm trying to achieve day on day and my, my normal life and all the rest of it. But, you know, and it's very, to me, it's very clearly the religious impulse, which is obviously something that humans have. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person myself. Um, I've shouted about that enough in the past. But, um, you know, that's not to say that we don't have this kind of need for transcendence on some level. And, and sometimes people get it from church services. And that's fine if that's your thing. Just don't try and make anybody else do it. Um, and, and indeed, football matches and, in my case, live music. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a moment in a, the sing-along during a Hold Steady gig where the barriers between not just the audience and the performers, but also between the individual people in the crowd starts to kind of fuzz out a bit. And yeah. it's a just a, it's a sort it's a form of euphoria that is food for the soul, and you don't get that watching a show on your laptop, you know, or, or if you're one of these fancy people who can make YouTube work on your telly, which I have yet to figure <laughs> out how to do. But do you know what I mean? It's like there's the, and, and, so that that's been kind of interesting to me, and 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 I'm sort of grateful for it as far as it goes. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's like oh yeah, there is something really special about being in a room with other people. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's some sort of, there's some innate human psychology in it, 100%. Um, and I guess that's why it's a shame that like everyone or so many people you speak to will have some sort of, some long memory of when they were young, went to their first gig, went to their first club night and how the music moved them, how they felt the music in their, 
in their in their chest and stuff. But then, as you say, time goes time goes on, and suddenly the maybe the politicians who are eventually making decisions, there's not the emotional attachment necessarily to 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 that experience as much anymore. I I, I uh, this might be uh, a stretch of a thing to say. It might be an unkind thing to say, but I wonder how many people currently and sitting in the House of Parliament have their, much of their life defined by live music. <laughs> uh, and fair enough. And this thing at the end of the day, this goes back to what again to what I was saying about special pleading. I'm aware that what I do is niche in many ways. I mean, first of all, not everybody's into live music. Secondly, I'm kind of a cult level artist might be a polite way of putting it you know i'm not ed sheeran um and <laughs> so the impact that i have on the world is limited and, and that's fine i don't i have very few ambitions to enlarge it to be honest but um nevertheless it is my life and i'm allowed to concentrate on my mm. life do you know what i mean it, I, I try not to make overly grandiose claims about who i am and what i do but it does matter to me when you uh, did your gig in Clapham in it was it in July? Yes. Was was that yeah. the, so? Was that the first socially distanced gig in the UK? It was. Yeah, yeah. it was. It was. It was the official government pilot, um, and it was quite funny because me and Jay, who's Beans on Toast, and Ali Wolf, who's the guy who runs the venue, we all used to live at Nambuka together, um, and you know we come from a pretty kind of anarchic sort of punk rock party indie promoter scene the rest of it and the three of us were looking at these like online posters with like government approved written on it and we were like jesus <laughs> christ what's happened to us um but you know there are a number of reasons i want to do it i mean obviously it's kind of fun to do something novel uh, that's cool um uh speaking more generally it felt really important to us to try because the thing is if the government says well what about this and you go well no that's not gonna work that's the end of the conversation it's done mm. Because then, then the the powers that be can turn around and go. Well, you didn't, you didn't try what we suggested. So our plan all along was to try it, and almost certainly to say that it didn't quite work, right. uh, which is exactly what we did. It's funny in in the aftermath. I think that Ali and I both decided that we possibly hammed up the negative side of it a bit much. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the BBC headline was kind of like "gig doesn't work" kind of thing, and it was yeah. like, "Well, hold on, the act of." playing live music in a room with other humans in was was like unbelievable it was so beautiful and it, the atmosphere in the room was just like nothing else but uh it didn't it didn't work in a kind of financial long-term kind of model kind of way but you know i didn't spend enough time saying that was incredible um jay played before i did and when he came off and before i went on he kind of grabbed me and said you have no idea what's going to happen um and like jay's a lot less kind of evangelist about the i get quite kind of religious in the way i talk about shows at the best of times jay doesn't really buy into that as much as i do nevertheless he i say grab me we were maintaining social distancing but he was just like mate you don't know you just don't know until you get out there what's going to happen and 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 he was right and it was just like mind-boggling how how much i'd missed it yeah I guess by by the by the time probably more thinking had gone into doing more stuff like that and other artists and other venues doing it, I guess things were kind of starting to l- shut down again. Yeah, well, I had a, I I had an interesting moment with that because around September I was sort of doing two types of gigs and I had actually started booking as many of them as I could because of other things I need to make a living. But yeah. there were some that were outside and there were some that were inside. They were all socially distanced, but there were the government guidelines weren't especially clear. But it was clear that things were a little looser if you were outdoors rather than indoors because of mm. air particle circulation and so on and so forth. And that's fair enough. And um, 
there was one weekend where I did uh, I did a second show at the Grand, and then I did um, a couple of shows in Nottingham at the Arboretum outdoors, and it was really interesting because one of the things in all of this is that there are two things I have to consider going into this. It's not just what the government regulations are and what the rules are. It's also what the public perception is, because like anybody who operates at least partly in the public eye, I have to consider public opinion as much as anything else. And like we did that three those three shows that weekend, and I always post a show picture every day of, of the night before. And the show picture from Clapham Grand, despite the fact that I cannot tell you how hard Ali, I was going to say Ali and I, but mainly Ali, worked to make sure everyone was obeying all the rules as they were. There was staggered arrival times. There was table service. There was bubbling. Mm. There was social distancing. There was masks on, all this shit. Nevertheless, um, I copped a bunch of flack for a picture of people inside at a gig. Uh, quite a lot of flack, actually. Whereas people didn't seem to care about the outdoor ones. And that was kind of a moment of like, hmm. But then the problem, mm. of course, is that we live in an island in the Atlantic Ocean, and come the end of September, I did the last one I did was at a thing called the Big Sheep in Biddeford, uh, and it was awesome. Um, and uh, it was freezing cold, <laughs> and that was in the southwest as well. And it was I could barely play the guitar; it was so cold. And it was kind of like I think the weather's turning on us now. And, and at that point, kind of decided to, and I think restrictions tightened again at that point, so kind of called it off. But um, you know, I'm hoping that if nothing else, come come the spring uh, I might be kind of occupying a fair few more fields around the country as and when that's possible yeah definitely and another thing I was thinking about this obviously it's the independent venues who've had the biggest sort of challenge put upon them I think it's it's obviously even before Covid happened it wasn't like it was easy to run an independent music venue uh, pre pre COVID, it's uh, yeah. people aren't doing it to make a fortune. They're doing it because it's their it's their passion. Right. What's the sort of cross industry movement been like on this? Like the big arenas, the huge global touring companies, and everything like that. Has there been a united sense across uh, across the music industry? Is what I'm trying to say. Or has yeah, it yeah. has it been a bit broken? I I okay. I have to now slightly watch what I say in response to this here and there, but I'll do my best to answer the question properly. It's been interesting on lots of different levels. I mean, um, first of all, credit where credit's due. There has been some fun set up by some of the major labels. Live Nation, I actually happen to know who are the demon of the live industry, but I know a few people who work for them and they've had really great support for their kind of freelancers who work for them regularly. They effectively furloughed their freelance staff, which was a great thing for them to do and like I say credit where credit's due uh i mean you know i i personally feel like there could always be more of that kind of thing um uh and that and now we get onto the bit where i have to be especially careful of quite what i say because it's an ongoing situation but yeah. then the next thing that's happened is is there is i think quite a large kind of kerfuffle coming the music industry's way there was a, a parliamentary committee recently in the dcms talking about streaming revenue because a lot of people have started to notice that Certain people in the streaming economy have been doing just fine since mm. March last year. Uh, some of the injustices of how that the economics of that have worked out have been kind of masked up till now, partly by novelty and partly by the fact that there are multiple income streams for an artist and that kind of thing. But if you suddenly find yourself as an artist, I think it was Gary Newman was saying he got paid 37 quid for a million streams of one of his songs. Um, and it's just like, ah, hmm, something, yeah. something doesn't smell right there. Um, 
And it's it's analogous to what happened in the 1980s in the music industry, where essentially CDs were developed as a new form of technology, and a lot of the labels kind of made the argument that because the CDs weren't mentioned in existing record contracts that they didn't have to stick to existing pay schedules and that stayed in place until George Michael fought a long court battle with Sony in around 1990 God bless George Michael and may mm. rest in peace and all the rest um, and what's interesting about that is he fought his record label in court for a year, won and then immediately re-signed with them because he didn't really <laughs> have an issue with what they were doing for him, it was just more about the fact that there was this Kind principle. of yeah. yeah, well, there was a kink in the contract. Bands weren't getting paid what they were actually due for CD sales. I feel like it's a very similar thing's happening right now. Streaming has kind of ballooned since most signed people have signed contracts. The standard causology of a music industry contract, a major label music industry contract, doesn't really get into it, and and therefore there's been some putting it politely opaque kind of machinations going on about that. Mm. I suspect a lot of that's about to change. It feels certainly like we're at a moment where a lot of that's about to change. Uh, and that that kind of leads into what we're talking about, just in the sense that for some artists, it's kind of like, you know, in the past, you might have made money from record sales during a time like this, had it ha- had this happened in the 70s or the 80s. People don't really make money out of record sales these days, um, or at least not a significant amount. Um, whereas, you know, streaming in theory should be an income stream, but it's not really, or at least not in a way that's commensurate with the amount of streaming that's going on. Um, and it's yeah. like, it's, I think, again, it, I always sort of feel like I want to be careful when talking about this because I don't want to sound like I'm moaning about the fact that I don't get paid enough or whatever. A better way of looking at it from my point of view is that there is X amount of money being generated by streaming. Let's look at who that's going to. And if you break it down like that, suddenly you realize that the people actually generating the art that is at the heart of this business model are tiny little bit players when it comes to the money of it. And there's something a bit not yeah. right about that um so there's been that kind of thing um then finally i mean talking about if going back to talking about venues and all the rest of it um again i want to be a bit careful i mean as i said at the beginning there are many many different causes that require help during a pandemic i've picked this one partly because it's close to my heart partly because it felt like a forum in which i could make a measurable impact do you know what i mean if i one can raise money for oxfam and oxfam are great and you should do that and all the rest of it but it it's so enormous that the amount of tangible difference that someone like me is going to make is quite, it's not really noticeable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And obviously being noticed shouldn't be your motivation for doing charitable work. But anyway, to me, it was like, here's a forum where I can make a difference and, and, and it will be a noticeable difference. So I wanted to pursue that. There's a lot of artists who've gone down other charitable paths and done their thing. And that's completely legit because as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, we are quite good at fundraising and what we do and that's fine. There have been a fair few artists who slightly just pulled up the rope ladder in the last year. And it's not really my place to tell anybody else what to do um, or how to do it and all the rest of it. But at the same time, there is a little part of me being 100% honest that feels a bit like that poster that they made during the war to rat on pacifists that was like, what did you do during the war, daddy? Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit like as and when things return to quote unquote normal you know, there is going to be a bunch of people who's just going to kind of like emerge from their country piles and just try and go and tour and make a shitload of money again. And it's a bit kind of like, if there is still an infrastructure there for you to do that with, it's going to be because of the efforts of other people mm-hmm. and not you. And that's a bit shit. I'm not going to name any names, obviously. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There, it, There's been an interestingly varied response across, for want of a better word, the artist community. Yeah, interesting. And as you say, it goes back to where you're focusing on the small independent venues where stuff starts. Because without that, 
you never get to the big arenas you never get to the the world tour exactly well you know if we if we get rid of small venues there will still be arena shows they'll just all be curated by simon cowell and you know what some people like that kind of shit and that's totally fine and i have no desire to take it away from them but it's not for me personally and i think it's not for quite a lot of people and if you want artists who have depth and who have character and have individuality to exist at that level they have to have a place in which to develop themselves as artists which is one of the many things that independent venues do you know radiohead figured out who they were in small venues ed sheeran figured out who he was in small venues and their later success was entirely built on work that was done in those four um and to the extent that it matters the same is true of me frank it's been really really interesting chatting to you We're kind of coming to the end of our <laughs> our time uh, i've been blathering away forgive me that <laughs> no it's been fantastic um i've got three final questions to ask you mm. um firstly what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in <laughs> many many things um i try quite hard to philosophically re-examine myself from first principles at, at sort of reasonably regular intervals should we say i hope that's not an overly pretentious thing to say <laughs> but it's true but i mean to pick an example when i was a teenager i was a rabid anarchist um and sort of believed that we could destroy the state and then everyone would just be happy uh, and i don't think that's true anymore um uh you know there have been moments in my life conversely where i've kind of disappeared a little bit too far down kind of more libertarian rabbit holes which i'm sort of now think that i got a little bit kind of like mechanical and brittle about that too turns out that's one of my problems in life um and not not kind of blather on and on about what i think all the time and to just be a little bit more kind of like um humble about what i think i know about the world um a friend of mine uh who has kids had a mug once upon a time when it, one of his kids turned into a teenager that said uh it said something like um go on then go and fix the world while you still know everything kind of thing and it, it was a bit like for me part of the process of getting older is realize that you don't really know anything about anything at all um uh so the short answer to your question is many many things <laughs> okay and second question if this wasn't your 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 mission obviously fighting the cause of these independent music venues what what would be i i don't know really i mean um it's 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 hard to say i mean i there's but there are many other things causes worth fighting for um what i've done historically in the last sort of five to ten years i've tried to kind of involve myself in charity activism that has to do with the live music environment so able to uk who do disabled access to shows or stay up late who get people learning disabilities access to shows that kind of thing it seems more focused to me doing it that way the other big kind of thing that i'm involved in is as a charity in sierra leone that i've been lucky enough to work with called way out arts um i have been doing my best to do some fundraising for them and indeed just donating this year um but that yeah there we go way out arts that's yeah. what i would say now well, hopefully the sooner the sooner coronavirus can get out of the way then people's time and effort can be spent on all the other important it, well quite and it's not like the the world wasn't lacking for causes for prior to all of this. <laughs> and then finally frank if you could recommend one book for members of the journey further book club to read what would it be um i am going to recommend uh, a book by clive james um who is one of my very very favorite writers he passed away just over a year ago um uh and i just think he was one of the in in kind of in in english language culture we don't really do kind of men of letters or people of letters in quite the same way that like the french do for example but like he was a man of letters of quite astounding erudition but also humor and style he was one of the greatest pro stylists i've ever read in my life um he wrote a book about 10 years ago called cultural amnesia 
which is his cultural pricey of the 20th century. Now, you have to be quite a substantial human to even consider being able to write a book <laughs> that's a cultural pricey of a century, let alone to pull it off with such style and panache. And it was just such an incredible book. I've read it about three times. Uh, it's episodic, so you can dip in and out. Um, I tend to sort of keep it keep it in the downstairs loo, so I can just sort of <laughs> dip in and out as required. Um, and it's just, he's, he's funny and he's witty and he's original and he's compassionate. And uh, it's just absolutely just, a, it changed my thinking my it changed my intellectual life quite profoundly it's it's um it's called cultural amnesia by Clive james there we go no that sounds fascinating i'm gonna i'm gonna have a look into that frank it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and and finding out all that's been going on in the last 12 months and and, and what you've been working towards fingers crossed we that's can fine. be back in a, in a in a small basement or or a pub or yeah. a small venue soon yes i hope to bounce into 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 you in a pit in the not too distant future <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm, def- I'm definitely going to get back into moshing once I'm allowed. <laughs> for sure. No, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the very end. Frank really is a top guy. Here's to hopefully seeing live music again very soon. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show, so please leave a rating or a review in your podcast app or drop me an email. It's just podcast at journeyfurther.com. Up next week, we have a fantastic conversation with Kim Scott and her business partner, Tria Bryant, all about Kim's new book, Just Work, which looks at what we can do to fight inequality and injustice in the workplace. I can't wait to share that with you. Hit subscribe and you'll be the first to hear it. See you next week.